Hey everyone, and welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast, co-hosted by me, Holly Hughes and Olivia Doyle, with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Trevor Smith from the Director's Desk. In this month's episode, we continue our collaboration with UF's Department of Agricultural Education and Communication AEC 4036 class taught by Dr. Jamie Lewitzo. We hear from Citrus Budwood Registration Assistant Bureau Chief Justin Ezell as he shares about Superstorm's impact in spreading citrus canker in the early 2000s. You're doing things to try to, to help the grower ultimately, you know, so we you, one less disease is is better for the grower. Then stay tuned for news and announcements in the Division Digest. From the Director's Desk with Trevor Smith. Well, happy fall, everybody. This is Trevor Smith. And we just celebrated our eight-year anniversary on the Giant African Land Snail Program. As most of you know, we've been slowly decommissioning cores over the last few years. So while eight years is a long time, it's also been a very successful program. And looking at the end of this year, we should be down to a total of 10 cores. So we went from a high of 32 population cores at one time down to 10. And then if things keep going the way they're going, we're looking at another couple of years and we will be able to declare uh, full eradication for the second time in history. In the news right now as well would be industrial hemp, in case nobody's heard about that. Um, we made a lot of progress with the rule. We actually had a, uh, I think I mentioned a few months ago that we had some of our senior staff traveling around the state, going to meetings, answering questions that growers had and homeowners, and it was open to the public. Anybody could ask questions about hemp and our regulations. And we were able to use a lot of those comments and what came back from those meetings, incorporated that into the rule and made some adjustments. And we're just about ready to hit the button and send that back out for public review. This time I suspect It's gonna be more nitpicky details. I think we've hit everything from the 10,000 foot level and uh, and DPI is gonna have a huge part in this. I mean, we're gonna be the ones that uh, actually give the permits. We're gonna be the ones that are out there doing what we would normally do, looking for pests and diseases. But there's also that THC testing component that uh, will be on the grower uh, for the most part to get that done, but we have to uh, witness that and verify that uh, that that test was done. So it's going to be another few months before we have a finalized rule, but we are in the home stretch at this point. Last week, I actually went down to Orlando to FNGLA's landscape show, and this is one of two of the largest landscape shows that FNGLA puts on each year. And it's a great opportunity to meet with, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of nurseries represented there. I mean, this is huge. The Orange County Convention Center, I mean, half the 
the center is just this meeting. So there are a lot of people there. We have a USDA booth right next to the DPI booth. And every time I walked by that booth, there was a crowd around. We had sterile medflies in the cage. We had all kinds of critters and, and things we could hand out, but it, there was always a crowd around our booth, which is, which is great. And while I was there, one of the big issues I was meeting on was this hibiscus bud weevil. And I think I've mentioned it in some of the previous podcasts, but what this weevil does is the female lays an egg on a hibiscus flower bud. The egg hatches, the larvae bores into the bud, pupates in there, the bud falls off, and then the adult emerges from that bud. So the only thing of value on a hibiscus is the flowers, and this thing wipes out the flowers. It doesn't kill the plant, the plant's perfectly healthy, but they can quickly knock out all the flowers on a plant. So this is a big issue, and we have some of the largest hibiscus producers on earth in South Florida. So we actually had a meeting, and I met with one of our biggest producers, and we worked out a compliance agreement that we think everybody can live with. It's something that's going to allow them to continue to ship, but also keeps, we keep our safeguarding mission in place so that we're not spreading this pest outside of a very confined area. As far as we know, it's still only in South Florida. And outside of Florida, this has been found in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and in Mexico. So that was a productive meeting. I think we've, we met halfway. Uh, it's, you know, we, we have got to make sure we don't spread this, but at the same time, uh, we need to be responsive to our industry's concerns about basically wiping out a segment of our nursery industry. Another issue that's actually cropped up in the last month, and this is an interesting one that I think over the next few years is going to become more of an issue, and that is the movement of citrus fruit from North Florida to Georgia. We now have a lot of citrus growers that have groves in both states. Well, that invisible line there between Florida and Georgia becomes very significant when you move citrus. So if a grower wants to move his citrus fruit, from North Florida it, to his packing house in Georgia, which is the case we're dealing with right now, that's a significant issue. Not only do you have to have a compliance agreement, but you also have to have the packing house, has to be certified by the USDA. Of course, USDA doesn't have a CHIRP program in Georgia, so Richard Miranda is gonna try and lend some people to, uh, to Georgia to maybe do that certification. We're going to come up with a memorandum of understanding between the state of Florida and Georgia. And this is all just to move some fruit 10 miles from Florida to Georgia. But the great thing about that is the acreage is continuing to grow. We're up to six, 700 acres in North Florida and maybe four or 500 just over the border in Georgia. So the fact that we've got over a thousand acres now of satsumas and a few other citrus varieties, but for the most part, it's satsumas. Um, is a great thing. Anywhere that we can expand this industry is a good thing. Not to mention satsumas, they kind of meet all of the public's needs right now. Seedless, easy peel, mandarin type. So it's, it's hitting the market at the right time as well. While orange juice is really struggling, easy peel, citrus fruit are on the rise. So there's a niche there. And you're also getting into an area where the psyllid doesn't survive very well. So greening and, and canker and some of these other things aren't as big an issue in, in that area. 
So anyway, I think we've come up with a, um, a plan to actually move the fruit this year, and then we'll continue over the next few years to formalize that, and uh, hopefully that'll continue to grow. Of course, everybody knows Hurricane Dorian uh, came through uh, the Caribbean and devastated the Bahamas. And one of the issues in the Bahamas right now is there's just this unbelievable amount of debris. And it's, it's all kinds of debris. It's green waste. It's obviously uh, timbers and washing machines and everything in between. It's complete devastation. And the Bahamians, the Bahamian government actually reached out to Florida's waste management uh, sections and asked if they could help. There's no landfills in the Bahamas. There's no soil to speak of. I mean, it's limestone just under the soil, so you can't bury anything. So it all has to be brought off the island and, and buried somewhere. So the obvious answer would be Florida, but then there are all kinds of pest and disease issues that we have concerns about. So two weeks ago, I went over to the USDA office here and uh, with, along with Richard Miranda, we met with the waste management folks and talked about the risk analysis we're gonna do. They kind of gave us a plan on how they thought they could do this without introducing a pest or disease. We have our scientists working hard right now um, all of our sections, looking at what is in the Bahamas, what are our major concerns. But there are, there's a lot of technology now that, that may allow for this. I mean, the, the risk might be worth it considering the catastrophe that, that they're dealing with in the Bahamas. Uh, but at the same time, we also were very frank with them in our discussions saying the further north you move this, the better off you are. The risk goes down dramatically every latitudinal movement up north, it gets less and less risky. Uh, so that's something we're dealing with and, and we're working with them. And again, we, we asked them to give us their plan, how they thought they could mitigate some of these issues. And then we'll run our own risk analysis uh, over the next uh, week or two and, and see what we come up with. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of uh, one of the worst cotton pests in the world is right there in the Bahamas. But is it in the northern Bahamas? I mean, there's hundreds of Bahamian islands and they stretch all the way from Haiti uh, to West Palm Beach. And there's a lot of different pests and disease issues depending on where you are. So we're trying to pick that apart now. Other than that, um, I think it's been business as usual for us, which means super, super busy every minute of every day. Uh, we just had our budget. I, I think this week our budget will be submitted from Tallahassee from the budget office. And that's the budget for all of us, every division. And obviously some of our big asks were hemp. Uh, we need resources for that. Uh, we had some uh, vehicles as usual. Uh, we had quite a few vehicles in there, uh, replacement vehicles that we were requesting. And then other things like continued funding for giant African snail, continued funding for our chirp program. Uh, those are kind of the, the usual ones, at least over the last eight years. Uh, the giant African snail ask has been in there. Uh, but other than that, the big focus was hemp, and, and it was hemp across the board. Food safety has to have positions. Uh, AES has to have positions. We have to have positions. Um, that's going to be uh, the majority of the extra that we have in the budget this year. With that, I will talk to you next month. When you travel by land
land, sea, or air, ask, can I bring it, and declare agricultural items. With your help, we could safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey, and remember, don't pack a pest. This interview was recorded for the Science of Superstorms podcast series on StreamingScience.com as part of our collaboration with Dr. Jamie Lewitzo's AEC 4036 class. In this interview, Justin Ezel reflects back on the devastating 2004 and 2005 hurricanes and how they impacted the Florida citrus industry. We hope you enjoy. My name is Justin Ezel. I work with the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Division of Plant Industry, under the Bureau of Citrus Bellwood Registration. So can you just explain a little bit how did you get to FDAC's DPI? I've grown up in and around agriculture my whole life, mostly around the citrus field. I attended the University of Florida, their School of Agriculture. I graduated in December, and in February, I was able to work with the department, started working and have been here ever since. What is the Bureau of Citrus Budwood Registration? The Bureau of Citrus Budwood Registration is a program that is designed to help citrus nurserymen and growers get varieties that are basically horticulturally true to type. So if you're wanting a Valencia orange, you know you're going to get a Valencia orange. You know that that material is going to be disease-free. So it's, it's designed to help, like I said, help the nurserymen, help the growers. Yeah, I can definitely see how that's important in the industry. So what do you like most about your position as Assistant Bureau Chief of the Citrus Budwood Registration? What I like most is probably the, the ability to get out in the field and, and meet with the growers and meet with the nurserymen, not be stuck behind a desk all day. You know, I love that interaction and, and, and working with these guys, citrus nurserymen and women, on problems, on issues they may have, things that we see at other nurseries that we might be able to help them with, just, just in general, just being outdoors with them. Yeah, so some, something always new and exciting and meeting For new sure. people. Yeah, so you mentioned that you're not behind a desk all day and you get to kind of be out and about and go different places and talk to different people. Could you define a typical day? Do you have a typical day? What might that look like? Wow. You know, it, it almost varies from day to day. Uh, it does change, but mostly I, you know, you come in in the mornings, you already know the day before what our game plan is. I One of the programs we talked about, or I didn't talk about earlier that I oversee is our commercial citrus nursery inspection program. And ultimately what that is, we inspect all of our nursery growers on a 30-day cycle. So we know we're going to be at this nursery every 30 days. So that's one aspect that we're doing. So if there's any issues that arise with that nursery, I may be going out there that day, uh, talking to that nurseryman, finding out what's going on, what we need to do, uh, or just going to, to make a site visit and go along with a normal inspection. But with that being said, we also we've, there's always meetings going on. There's travel within the bureau. We've got three main locations that that we have. We've got our Winter Haven facility, our Chiefland facility, and our Lacrosse facility. So in a typical week, I may make visits to all of those locations as well, dealing with our bureau chief and and people. 
always something different though. for sure that's, keeps it exciting and on the road and that's really interesting so you mentioned that part of what the Citrus Budwood Registration Bureau does is make sure that what you see is what you get and it the citrus from the start is disease-free. So what kind of diseases do you deal with? On my level and what we deal with, we deal with all kinds of citrus diseases. But the two that I'm most familiar with and what really, you know, our program deals with result around citrus greening and citrus canker. So can you tell me a little bit more about citrus canker? What what does it look like? Well, citrus canker is a bacteria. And ultimately, when it gets a little older, the best way to describe it is you see this little, on a leaf, for instance, you see this little brown, what we call a lesion, a little dot. And around that will be this bright yellow halo. So it's almost, you you, you know it when you see it. So what does that mean for the grower if their groves have citrus canker? If they have citrus canker, ultimately canker causes, you know, premature fruit drop. It eventually will kill the tree. Here in Florida, we're more of a processed juice state. So most of our fruit goes for orange juice. Gotcha. But there are there is a portion of the state that does ship, you know, internationally for, for the fresh fruit market. And okay. citrus canker is a big deal for the fresh fruit guys because with these lesions that I spoke about, you know, it makes the fruit look nasty. doesn't alter the taste or anything like that, but just in general, you can't have a piece of fruit that just looks nasty. Nobody wants to buy it. And then with that being said, with them shipping across to different countries and things like that, if that country doesn't have citrus canker, they're not going to want to accept the potential risk of getting it from an area that does have canker. So how is citrus canker established here in Florida? It seems like it's pretty established. It is. We've had multiple programs aimed at eradicating it. I believe what I understand is it started back in the early 1900s with some seedlings that were brought over from Japan. They quickly eradicated that, and I believe they had another bout of citrus canker in the 30s and then again in the the early 80s and they were able to eradicate it at those times we ended up having canker rear itself again in the the mid 90s and after that it seemed like it started being a little more prevalent say late 2004 we had uh, or mid 2004 we had some hurricanes that crisscrossed the state and that was a time when canker really established itself because, you know, cankers spread through wind-driven rain. And what better way to, to spread it with, you know, a hurricane. So the topic of this podcast, something that we're kind of focusing in on are superstorms. And obviously, especially here in Florida, one of the most prevalent superstorms are hurricanes. So what role did that superstorm, the hurricanes in 2004 and 2005, play in the establishment and spread of citrus canker? Well, when the canker program really started back up, I'd say 2000, 2001, we had a good grasp on, I think, we were getting to the point where I felt like, anyways, that we were, we were going to eradicate this thing. And in 2004, we had... We had three three hurricanes, Charlie, Francis, and Gene, that crisscrossed the center of the state. And I think from that point, it just became so, so widespread, the inoculum, that we just weren't going to be able to, to catch up to it and, and get rid of it. 
one thing about that, not only did it spread it, but the storm itself, but there's a point where you, you can't see it. You know, at the early stages, you, you just, you don't see it. You don't know that it's there. And one way to easily spread that other than a storm is, is humans themselves, you know, not yeah. decontaminating, not washing their hands, not washing their tools or anything like that. You don't see it. You don't know that it's there. Next thing you know, you're trimming this plant and you go trim this plant and you just spread it and not, not because you wanted to, but you didn't know that it was there. So mother nature isn't fully responsible. It's definitely something that can happen, you know, person to person. And the for sure. I mean, mother nature plays a big part in it, but so does the human factor. As you were saying, there were efforts to eradicate citrus kinker prior to these storms and there were eradication programs and just working really hard to get rid of it in the state. In what ways were the storms discouraging to the people working on those programs to eradicate citrus kinker? Well, you know, you work so hard. You work long days and into the night. I mean, <laughs> you're doing things to try to, to help the grower ultimately, you know. So we you, one less disease is is better for the grower. And with the storms coming through, that was that was quite discouraging because there was part of us that knew, hey, man, this stuff is going to be spread all over and there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the, the most discouraging part of it. You have no control over that storm. Yeah, completely out of your hands and up to Mother Nature that yes. didn't necessarily work in the favor of those eradication Not at programs. All. How were the efforts to eradicate shifted after these storms after it was kind of realized like this is everywhere now what how did that change the way that we looked at citrus canker well we looked at citrus canker as hey it's here so we've got to learn how to live with it ultimately there's there's certain things we can do from the the early production of citrus trees before they get out into the field being in closed structures like i mentioned earlier that we we, we do our inspections on and that whole program but once the trees are in the field, you know, they're, they're, there they are again, back in, in Mother Nature's hands, so to speak. There are chemicals that are used to help not eliminate canker, but help help the tree prevent from, from, from getting it. So. Okay. So how can measures be taken, you know, looking forward in the future to protect the Florida citrus industry from superstorms like those hurricanes? I know you mentioned those indoor structures. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, for sure. The indoor structures, you know, we have a program set up where all citrus is propagated has to be done in a closed insect proof structure. Most of these structures obviously will keep out the wind blown rain. So your only risk of moving canker, if it got inside, would be the human factor, which it has happened before. And, you know, but we quickly eliminate that. But it narrows down those opportunities. For, for sure. sure. So when that tree goes out, you know that you're getting a clean, clean tree to begin with. Because I can't remember exactly how many, how many nurseries we had that actually were truly impacted from a canker standpoint after those 04 storms. Um, I know there was a handful. Yeah. And I can think of some of their names right off the top of my head. But, um, and really it was just a matter of, where they were located yeah uh if they had 
a grove very close nearby that that had canker in it you know that maybe we hadn't already found because that's mainly what we were doing that was during the canker eradication program so we were inspecting groves for canker maybe we haven't got to that grove yet we just didn't know that it had it um but even with that being said there wouldn't have been too much we could have done days before the yeah. storm to have gotten rid of it yeah, you know there's, to, to save the nursery trees but was it like difficult after the fact to continue that or was it just kind of picking up where you left off going to the next grove or did you kind of have to work backwards and say now after the storm do we need to go back in? yeah after the storm it kind of you know everything was still in effect so the citrus canker eradication program was still in effect even after those storms so when those nurseries came down with actual citrus canker we, we had they had to treat that nursery no different than they treated the grove so basically you were you find a positive tree in there you're taking that tree out and then a 1900 foot circle around it so in a sense that would wipe out that whole nursery and its stock just from one one tree being positive or if that nursery fell close enough to a citrus grove that actually had canker in it then that arc would have been thrown into that nursery um, and take those trees out so it wasn't until when 2005 that the program actually ended so oh, there wow. were some nurseries that were definitely impacted and lost a lot of trees prior to them ending the program because and, of the hurricane and that's before they were inside the structures yes. that were we did not go inside until you know 2007-ish time frame we started the program late 06 started and closing everything in 2007 and by the end of 2007 beginning of 2008 every tree that we have produced since then has been inside a enclosed insect proof structure gotcha so that protects it from scissors screening but had those structures been there around the time of those storms at least those nurseries would have been a little more they protected. would have been a lot more protected and you never know with, with mother nature i mean you could have you know we, we had a recent storm irma that came through and impacted a lot of our citrus nurseries didn't devastate them i mean the structures held up well but it's, it's mother nature yeah. i mean you can only protect so far. That's right. Like you said, the hurricanes of 04 and the nurseries then not being protected like they are today. And I, and I don't know what difference that would have made back then. It probably would have made a, a big difference because I know since the eradication program ended, we definitely have a lot more inoculum, a lot more canker that, that's out there than we did back then. And having the structures now enclosed, and even with a hurricane like Irma that came up the, the middle of the state not too long ago, I thought we fared pretty well after that storm. We did have some damage out there, but nothing like, you know, what everybody envisioned and what, what could have happened. Gotcha. So are there any other ways that the industry has adapted since the establishment of Kinker? I mean, they've adapted from the, from the aspect that you know, maybe they're having to spray more to, to help mitigate the risk of, of getting canker. I mean, like I said, ultimately, it's, it's, it's hard. Mother Nature's, <laughs> with the way this disease works, it, it's hard to combat it with Mother Nature. Yeah, no doubt about that. What does the department do as a regulatory agency to detect citrus canker and control it as much as possible? We've kind of touched on some of those things, but what 
what role is the Department of Agriculture play in that? Well, the department has a, a couple different programs set up, one being the Citrus Health Response Program that that does basically field inspections. So not only are they looking for canker, they're looking for other diseases that possibly we may not have yet, but hey, we're out there looking, so if we do have it, we, maybe we can catch it early and, and get into that eradication mode and, and, and get rid of it before it becomes a a big problem for the state. Is it challenging being in Winter Haven? I know you came to see me in Gainesville today. What, you know, challenges are there with being not at the, Definitely. Where the That's division a, is headquartered? One of our challenges right now is working out is, is as we shift some of these duties and responsibilities and projects up to lacrosse is one of the things when we get that tree cleaned at lacrosse is well, shoot, now we're all the way up in North Florida. We've got to get that tree back down to the breeders or, or you know, grove owners back down in Central Florida. So how are we going to do that? Are we going to make them drive up there? Are we going to, if we happen to be up there, bring that down with us? And logistically, just, you know, how are we going to do that? Same with getting the dirty material. Well, the dirty material comes to Winter Haven, but once we create that, that clean shoot tip graft, getting it up to uh, La Crosse, how are we going to do that? So transportation can be a little bit yeah. That's one thing we're looking at right now, uh, but we're we're working it out. We're making it work. Um, we've always got somebody coming down from Lacrosse or Chiefland to Winter Haven to pick up something, and and vice versa. We're always going up there to take something. So we kind of just kind of schedule out our trips now, as opposed to saying, "Hey, on Wednesday I'm going to do this." Well, why don't we wait till next Wednesday and. Take you know, some stuff with take you. some stuff with us. Make make the trip really worthwhile. So just about efficiency and all that planning. Yes, ultimately there's a ton of planning that goes into to the Bureau of Bowwood. Do you have to travel to Gainesville a lot, or is it mostly just um, between the Lacrosse and the Winter Haven? Uh, yeah, I travel personally. I travel a lot to Gainesville, Lacrosse, and like I said, I'm stationed out of Winter Haven, but. The prim- primarily the duties that, that revolve around me take me to Gainesville, mostly for meetings and stuff like that, but lacrosse just to find out, make sure we're still on track, we're, you know, um, doing, doing what we're supposed to with the plants. Uh, I do make a trip over to Chiefland every now and then. Uh, we have just established, just planted a seed source block for the industry. So a lot of the newer varieties for seed that are coming out, we have established that seed source block. So from time to time, I swing by there uh, with our bureau chief being stationed out of lacrosse now. He's no longer in Chiefland as well. So between both of us, we'll kind of tag team it, and he takes a look at it this week, and maybe I grab it the following week. It's just... So is that the first, um, like, establishment of a seed source block, or is that something that... DPI's had it in the past? It's something DPI's had in the past and kind of got away from it and now just with all the newer newer varieties, newer rootstocks that are coming out, uh, there's always a, sh- there's been a shortage of seed. So we thought as to help industry and we had to land uh, that, that we could help fill that void, if you would, uh, by planting this seed source block and maybe get a jump on some of the newer the newer varieties that, that growers may want. So so for anyone who doesn't know what a seed source block is, can you explain what the use of one is for? Seed source block is so a citrus tree is made up of 
we'll call it two parts. You've got a rootstock part and you've got a scion part, which is your actual variety. So if you wanted a Hamlin orange, if you wanted a Valencia orange, if you wanted a red grapefruit, uh, that, that's your scion part. And the rootstock is what the scion is grafted onto. And the reason for rootstock is we, we've got different soil types here in Florida. We've got uh, different growing regions and the rootstock you kind of guide depending on where you're growing that's what type of rootstock you want um, so and to get rootstock comes from seed so we start the seed block and depending on what type of rootstock you want so we plant all these trees and wait for them to fruit and then extract the seed and from there you've got You've got your rootstock. There's a lot of trees out there. I think we've only got a 250, 300 trees in the ground right now, but with tons of room for a lot more. So, so that's going to be an up-and-coming project. For it will be a big up-and-coming project for us. And that's under the Bureau of Citrus Budwood it Registration. Is. Yes. A lot of growers, you know, we, we don't know what rootstocks are going to be compatible with these newer varieties or what rootstocks grow well somewhere and how they hold up to citrus greening. Um, so sometimes you get a late start on having those. So by, by incorporating this new seed source block, I'm hoping we can, even if we don't use the seed, it comes out that, hey, you know, these trees are not what the industry needs or wants. We've got seed there. And just the flip side of that, if it is something the industry really needs or wants, we've got a jump start on it. So we've got trees coming along with rootstock seed. So that's a big, big plus and by what we're doing. And that's interesting to see, obviously, you know, DPI works with industry by just by nature. That's, that's part it. of the job. But that's really cool to see a specific, there was a need in the industry and seeing how DPI kind of filled that need. And we were able to help, correct. That's great. So outside work, what, what do you enjoy doing? For our listeners who are here um, oh. internally at DPI, what, what do you like to do? Well, I'm a big, I love fishing, fresh water primarily. Uh, I've got a great wife and two, two twin girls that keep me pretty busy between between soccer and softball or two of our big sports that they love playing so we're really into that and just just family life just hanging out and okay well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us a little bit today about citrus canker and super storms and everything happening at the division to combat those things for sure thank you interested in what our scientists are up to at DPI, all of our publications can be found online. Visit the plant industry page on our new website at www.fdax.gov pi to find out more. This is the Division Digest. This month, we want to welcome some new faces to the division, as well as congratulate a promotion and successful career here at DPI. First, we want to welcome our new accountant, Karima Huggins. She holds a bachelor's degree in accounting and will be our point of contact for invoice processing 
including purchase orders, contract, and utility invoices. Join us in welcoming Karima to her new position. We are excited to announce the appointment of Dr. Emily Kraus as our new biological scientist for overseeing the Asian Citrusillid or Tamarixia and Air Potato Beetle Biocontrol Programs in the Bureau of Methods Development and Biological Control. Dr. Kraus obtained her BS degree in entomology from Purdue University, her MS degree in entomology from Kansas State University, and her PhD in entomology from Louisiana State University. Most recently, she held a postdoctoral position at the Rhodes University Center for Biological Control in Grahamstown, South Africa, where she worked on biocontrol of invasive aquatic weeds. Welcome, Emily. Next, we want to congratulate Holly Spence as the new Administrative Secretary in Data Processing. Holly has been working for DPI in Data Processing for the past year in an OPS position and has done an outstanding job. Congratulations again, Holly. This month, we would like to announce the retirement of Jeff Lotz. Jeff served the division as photographer and videographer for 35 years. His skills were used on many projects, ranging from ID photos to capturing pictures at the events of many commissioners, along with various videos and specimen photos. Jeff, thank you so much for all you have done for the division. We appreciate your service to the department and wish you the best of luck in retirement. Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at freshfromflorida.com. This podcast was produced in part by Olivia Doyle and Holly Hughes. Don't bug us. We'll have another episode next month.